Dartmouth Hitchcock Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm one of your hosts, Amog Karnik. We'd like to take a few moments today to talk about vaccinations. Vaccination plans are evolving quickly. Here at Dartmouth Hitchcock, we've been a part of many conversations with the state of New Hampshire to better understand distribution plans and next steps. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Sally Kraft, who is the Vice President of Population Health here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I'm also joined by my co-hosts, Rima Mercado, Jose Mercado, and Marshall Ward. Let's dive in. Sally, thank you for joining us today. I was hoping that we could start things off by talking about your takeaways from our first wave of vaccinations in phase 1A. Phase 1A was the first rollout of the vaccine in the state of New Hampshire, even though we know that some of our patients are from other states, but I'll be directing my comments to the state of New Hampshire plan. 1A introduced vaccinations for high-risk healthcare workers and moderate risk healthcare workers, as well as the staff and residents of long-term care facilities and first responders. And the state helped us by further spelling out that those risk levels were really dependent on the amount of exposure that you had to patients and bodily fluids or aerosols that were potentially contaminated with the uh, coronavirus. As we uh, worked through that phase 1A group, high and moderate risk, we also recognized that there were many uh, healthcare workers or health workers in our health systems whose functions are very essential to the operations of the health system. However, they don't have anticipated exposure to COVID-19 as part of their job responsibilities. Those workers were included in the phase 1B allocation. And we'll be talking about phase 1B in a minute. So we've spent, we being a large multidisciplinary group across Dartmouth Hitchcock Health, spent weeks working on the preparation for vaccine administration and then actually conducting vaccination clinics. And we gave our first uh, shot in the arm. It was on December 16th, 2020. And as of um, the end of the day today, we have done about 6,600 vaccines here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And that included predominantly the first doses for our phase 1A workforce. And a few of the phase 1B workforce are in there too. What did we learn from this experience? I actually think it's really interesting that what we learned was much of what we've known in clinical medicine for a long time. Remember the IOM crossing the quality chasm report, and that was way back in 2001, where they said the gap between what we know we should do and what we do is not just a gap, but really a chasm. And it was interesting as we tried to take those guidelines that were very clearly written on a piece of paper and translate that to who should be invited at what time to get a vaccine. And it was difficult work. 
it reinforced again that things that appear to be simple are often very complicated when you go to implement them in the real world. And I also felt that what we really learned was the importance of teamwork. There was no way any single person could sit in an office and say, oh, we should send an invitation now to this group of, of workers. It really took the, the teamwork of many people, ID, epidemiology, occupational medicine, our human resources people, our legal counsel, many folks coming together to help put together the lists of eligible healthcare workers to time the invitations so we didn't overwhelm our occupational health clinic staff who were standing up clinics and vaccinating hundreds of people at a time and, and making sure that we were providing to all of our employees the education and the information they needed in a timely um, way. And so we really needed our communications and our marketing colleagues. So at the end of the day, I think what we learned is that while things may appear relatively simple, it's always difficult to implement. And truly, it takes a team in order to achieve a high quality product. And I have to say at the end of this, I am really proud of occupational medicine and how well we were able to move our employees through in a really fast fashion. Yeah, I agree, Sally. That's uh, very impressive, and that's a very good lesson to share. So thank you for sharing that with us. We also heard a lot from the press about the discrepancy between vaccines distributed versus administered. Could you offer some perspective as to why you think this happened or is continuing to happen and how we may close that gap? Yeah, I... This is hard for me to, to comment on because I really truly believe that these gaps that we're seeing are very context specific and context specific. In other words, the reason that you see differences in the data, there are probably many factors that contribute to that. First and foremost, this data changes by the hour. I have never worked on a project where things are so dynamic and changing so quickly. So while you may say, oh, we have, I'll just, I'm just making numbers up, 8,000 doses in the, in the refrigerator or the freezer, and we've only vaccinated 6,000 people, why is there a gap? The truth of the matter is that by the end of the next day, you may have vaccinated another 1,000 or 2,000 people. So it is extremely difficult to understand this data. It moves very quickly. In addition, we talk about allocation of vaccine. In other words, how many doses did the state of New Hampshire give to Dartmouth-Hitchcock? And then we talk about, people talk about shots in arms or the actual vaccinations that were performed. And so there's um, some confusion in the terminology. And I think people have to be really clear when they're talking about allocations versus administration, vaccines administered. And, and then I'll just highlight again that when something is allocated or distributed to you, that's often coming to us two or three days in advance of a major clinic that we're going to be hosting. So there is a lot of uh, nuance to this data. Again, I just to, 
to share some Dartmouth-Hitchcock numbers here at, Leb- at the Lebanon campus, 8,900 invitations have been sent out at this point in time, and about 6,600 first doses have been provided with another very large clinic planned for tomorrow, Saturday on January 23rd, 2021. We have moved our We've moved our vaccine through very quickly once it's been uh, delivered from the state. Nationally, again, I think there are a lot of nuances as to why different sites have had difficulty being able to provide vaccinations as quickly as they would like to do that. Some of that is workforce uh, related. Some of it is vaccine supply. Thank you, Sally. Thanks, Jose. I'd like to transition a little bit to talking about phase 1B. So we talked a lot about our initial wave of phase 1A. Now, when we look at the state guidelines and what is going to be carried out over the next few weeks, does the recommendation to vaccinate people based on age and comorbid medical conditions make sense from a population health perspective? Yeah, I think you have to think about what are you trying to accomplish with your vaccination program? And the state of New Hampshire I think has really focused on how do we decrease the number of people who are dying or getting sick from COVID-19. We know that the elderly and that people with pre-existing diagnoses, medical conditions, are at increased risk for having severe disease. And this phase B, 1B allocation plan really targets those uh, populations. In addition, in phase one, as I mentioned, in phase one, residents and uh, staff from long-term care facilities were vaccinated. In the state of New Hampshire, at least as of just a couple weeks ago, 80% of the mortality that we've seen in our state were of people who lived in long-term care facilities. So that's why they were so highly prioritized as we first started to roll the vaccine out. So when you think about who are those people who are um, at greatest risk for uh, morbidity, illness, or mortality from COVID-19, it is the elderly and those with underlying uh, medical conditions. And we know those two two things are highly correlated. The higher the proportion of elderly with uh, more than one chronic condition certainly is higher than in the younger group. From an objective of decreasing morbidity and mortality, the phase 1B selections do definitely make sense. Just one more note um, on populations that have been disproportionately uh, burdened um, and impacted by COVID-19, and those are our groups of different ethnicities and communities of color. And the data nationally is very clear. And actually in the state of New Hampshire, we share the same same problems with equity and disparities with higher disease rates and mortality rates amongst our Hispanic Latino communities and our African-American communities. The state of New Hampshire does specifically call out that they want to focus on making sure that race um, and ethnicity and equity are particularly equity is a guiding principle through all of their allocation plans. And that is another set of populations that certainly here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we want to do a little bit deeper dive into this phase 1B population and look at that from a race and ethnicity lens. 
Awesome. Thank you, Sally. Now, how do we translate these recommendations into clinical practice? So if I'm a patient who's looking for my vaccine, could you walk me through the process of being identified as being eligible to scheduling that first dose, second dose, and going from there? Yes, and this is a dynamic <laughs> discussion. Uh, things change uh, very quickly um, in this space. But let me walk you through for a New Hampshire resident. If you are 65 years or older, you go directly to the New Hampshire website, and there you will answer a series of questions, and you will be able to be registered for a vaccine. My understanding as of uh, this point in time is that there are nearly 150,000, as best we can tell, people who have already accessed uh, this website today. So 65 years and older, you don't need any other qualifiers. You just go directly to that website and sign up. And then when you are invited to uh, be vaccinated and you go to one of the state sites or one of the open pod sites, you'll have to show proof of New Hampshire residency and age. For those who are over the age of uh, 16 and less than 64, and have two or more conditions that the Centers for Disease Control have identified as medical conditions that increase your risk of COVID-19, you need to have a medical verification done before you are able to sign up on the website. First of all, the CDC, let's just quickly review these CDC categories of uh, diseases. They include cancer, chronic renal disease, COPD, Down syndrome, multiple different cardiac diseases, immunosuppressive state, obesity, pregnancy, type 2 diabetes, and sickle cell disease. For our patients here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, we've been able to use the electronic health record to identify a large list of patients, 25,000 patients who are less than 65 years of age, they're New Hampshire residents, and they have two or more of those conditions that um, I just mentioned. That entire list of patients then is separated into those who have emails and those who don't. And you may be saying, why would you make that separation? Because there are different processes that we have to go through. I want to focus right now on the 17,500 patients who have emails in our system. Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health IT will automatically send to the state of New Hampshire a uh, file that indicates that this patient who is identified by name and by email, these 17,500 patients qualify as being in phase 1B. Our providers do not need to go through lists of patients. They do not need to fill out any paper forms. That information is automatically being sent to New Hampshire. When that information is sent to New Hampshire, our patients, those patients will receive by email and also by a posted letter and notice that says Dartmouth-Hitchcock shared with the state of New Hampshire the fact that you are verified to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. The state of New Hampshire then picks it up from there. The state of New Hampshire will reach out directly to our patients 
And that may take up to five days for that to happen, but they will reach out directly to our patients, send them an email and say, yeah, you're invited to link to this website and to schedule your COVID-19 vaccine. So that's for folks with email addresses. We have a group of patients, about 8,000, who fulfill the medical vulnerability criteria, and uh, we have no email on record. We only have a phone number. We will be doing the same kind of automated verification process, sending their information directly to the state of New Hampshire, but they can expect to get a phone call from New Hampshire. And we still have to work out some of the nuances for that population with, without emails. So there'll be some fine tuning of that process, but that process will be in place. So again, our providers and care teams will not have to go through and identify those patients. Finally, if a, a provider says, I have an individual patient who doesn't fulfill those two CDC conditions, but I am I'm telling you, this patient is medically vulnerable and really at high risk. The individual patients, the individual providers will have an capability of sending directly to the state the information needed. So those vulnerable patients will again be contacted by the state and be offered an opportunity to be vaccinated. Again, that final process going through your panel or going through the list of patients who you've seen and identifying specific patients at risk, that final process will be, that those processes will be finalized and probably introduced uh, to all of our providers either. I'll just add one last category of folks, and that is the family caregivers of pediatric populations, populations less than age 16 who are medically vulnerable. And we are, those family caregivers also must be verified in the state system that they, these are indeed family caregivers and that they need to be vaccinated. And we are currently working, our IS team, our data analytics team and the pediatricians are working together to finalize how that process will work. It is quite a bit more complicated, but I have no doubt that we'll have that done within probably two or three business days. Thank you for sharing that with us, Sally. It is remarkable to me the amount of planning and careful thought process that you and others have put into this to really identify patients proactively. I just have to say how impressed I am by that and to help facilitate the vaccination of our, our vulnerable population. And thinking about from the patient's perspective, and this is something we have covered at times in, in prior podcasts that we've uh, produced, but thinking from the patient's perspective, a decision to receive the vaccine, are there situations where you would advise a patient to have a conversation first with their primary care provider before going uh, to these vaccination programs, things such as allergies or pregnancy or otherwise? Yeah, that's a, a great question. These vaccines are very safe. It's I'm actually um, really impressed with the fact that we have vaccinated so many people here just locally and had minimal, minimal problems, people having problems uh, with the vaccine. 
The only absolute contradiction in my mind to getting the COVID-19 vaccine is if you had a previous serious reaction to the first dose of the vaccine. And then our recommendation is not to follow through and get that second dose. We do know listed on the areas for that we that are advised that patients uh, speak to their providers is if they have a known severe allergy to PEG, polyethylene glycol. That's a substance probably most of us, those of us over 50 may have experienced that when we had to have our prep for our colonoscopy. But it is fairly common. It's polysorbate or and polyethylene uh, glycol are fairly common ingredients, and the number of people with severe allergies to that are quite small. And I would, if you have a known allergy, I would talk to your primary care provider. We also have recommended that if you've had severe allergies, severe allergies, anaphylactic reactions in the past or severe reactions to other vaccines that you you may wish to seek um, advice from your uh, primary care provider. But honestly, I can tell you just based on our experience here at Dartmouth, people really have done very well, even those people who have had some some difficulty with allergies in the past. The other population that may wish to speak with their uh, provider would be uh, those women who are pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant in the near future. Most of the obstetricians who I have uh, had opportunity to confer with are recommending that even if you are pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant or nursing, that you go ahead and proceed with the vaccine and that the uh, risk of COVID-19 and pregnancy appears to outweigh the concerns related to the vaccine and pregnancy. The other group that we have recommended not being vaccinated immediately um, following a infusion of monoclonal antibody for COVID-19, and we have recommended a 90-day period from the time that you receive that infusion of monoclonal antibodies until you do get the vaccine. And then finally, what may happen even more commonly is if you receive any vaccine in the two-week period prior to your scheduled COVID-19 vaccine, we're recommending that there's a full 14 days between any other vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccine. And that may be of particular um, note for new employees who have to get caught up on their vaccination series or receive an influenza uh, vaccine before they can work here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We do have a number of people who have received recent vaccines and we're, our recommendation is to wait for 14 days from the last vaccine until you get the COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you for helpful information. We've been talking a lot about these allergic reactions that uh, have been seen rarely to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which are the two vaccines currently available to us. There are other vaccines in development, some being used already in other countries, such as AstraZeneca and Johnson's developing a vaccine. When will we expect these vaccines to be available? And when they are available, will we have a choice of which vaccine to be administered? We don't know exactly when they're going to be available. They need to complete their trials and they need to complete FDA review. What I have seen in the literature is that there's hope that the um, Janssen, which is the Johnson & Johnson product, 
may be available end of February, March. Again, that will all depend on uh, the timing of the final phase three trials and then the um, subsequent FDA review. AstraZeneca in the United States, the most up-to-date estimate of when it will come to the market is probably sometime in April. So we've got a little bit of time to wait and uh, before both of those reach the United States. At this point in time, you can't choose between the two vaccines on the market are Pfizer and Moderna, and you really don't have a choice. And the reason for that is that we, based on allocation, we don't know exactly here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock which vaccine we're going to get. We might get a large shipment of Pfizer or a small shipment of Pfizer. And what we're trying to do is just vaccinate as many people as we can as quickly as we can. So there's no choice given when someone comes to a vaccine clinic. It is important to know that if you must get your second dose with the same vaccine that you got your first dose, and when you come in to get your vaccination done, you should be given a follow-up appointment scheduled for your second dose. And again, that should be the same, medic the same vaccine that you received on your first dose. Once we get more vaccine on the market, Marshall, I don't know whether or not we'll be able to give choice, but right now we're unable to give choice just based on the way the vaccine is allocated. Thank you for clarifying that, Sally. I heard you say earlier that it's the majority of those who have we have vaccinated so far have done pretty well. And I think that's reassuring for most people. But I just wanted to just mention in this episode, if there had been any side effects that people experience, could you just, just run through what is really expected versus the unexpected and what should patients do and who do they call? Yeah. The most common side effect is a sore arm. And probably everyone here is going to nod. And yes, we had a sore arm. And that's by far been the most common side effect. Other side effects have been really mild systemic or, or maybe moderate systemic um, effects, fatigue, some chills, low-grade fever, a little bit of nausea, myalgias, not feeling very well. And that usually happens the day, within a couple of days of the vaccine, usually most commonly the following day. People can get side effects even up to 14 days after the vaccine, but we have not seen that. In fact, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock-Lebanon, we've only had, I think, one or two people who have even felt so poorly that they couldn't come to work on the day following the vaccine. So in general, it's well tolerated. That's somewhat skewed uh, data simply because a lot of people are trying to get the vaccine on the day before they have a scheduled day off. I recognize that data is uh, pretty skewed. But regardless, the vaccine has been really very well tolerated. If you do get some chills, low-grade fever, malaise, myalgias, you can take acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. At this point in time, the CDC is not recommending uh, pre-medication before the vaccine with a, a non-steroidal or acetaminophen. So we are not recommending that, but all evidence that we have is that it is uh, safe to take that if you should develop any side effects. 
for patients who have severe side effects, and they will need to define that themselves. But obviously, anyone who has syncope, loss of consciousness, respiratory distress, anything that is significant and severe symptom, they need to be seen. They need to contact a provider immediately. If they're really an extremist, they obviously need to call 911 and get um, seen for immediate attention. But anyone with really significant um, side effects like that needs to let their provider know that they're having those side effects. And that provider may actually be also a person who gave you the vaccine, like occupational health, who we, they, pre, they administered the vaccine. They need to know about those side effects. They are, our occupational health people don't, won't, don't serve as providers, but they will make the recommendation that you contact your own personal provider. And certainly as our patients are gonna be vaccinated in the state sites, they will need to know that severe reactions need to be, they need to contact the state. And I don't know what that process is exactly, but um, I'm sure when they get vaccinated, that will be, they'll get information on how to contact the state if they have a severe reaction, but they will have to contact their own provider. The state is not providing um, any medical care for patients who de uh, develop side effects uh, related to the vaccine. I will, and why is it important to let your, the person who administered the vaccine know about the side effects? It's because it's entered into a um, national system, VAERS, a vaccine system that will be keeping track of any serious side effects. And that will be important as uh, we learn more and more about the use of um, the vaccines and the impact of the vaccines on the population. One more tool that um, may be helpful for people um, as they are getting their vaccine, and that's a, an app um, called VSAFE, V as in vaccine safe. You can just uh, Google that. I, I know you can find it on the CDC page as well. It's a pretty nifty app that will talk you through what to do if you do have uh, side effects. It, it allows you to enter the side effect that you had, and it will give you advice on on, um, how to handle that side effect. It will also remind you when your second dose is, is due. It doesn't schedule that dose for you, but it will give you a reminder. Hey, your second dose is February 2nd. Are you ready? Do you have, are you scheduled, et cetera. So it's a nice app that's been developed and it's free for anyone to use. Again, it's called VSAFE, Vaccine Safe. Thank you, Sally. I think just lastly, thinking about vaccine hesitancy as a concern all over the country, as we roll out the vaccines to, to the public and risk weighing all these risks and benefits and deciding whether or not to get them, what would you advise all patients who's listening right now? My advice is to read, to study their really excellent information that's available. The CDC website is very easy to access. The information there is up to date, easy to understand. Our own Dartmouth-Hitchcock website, Dartmouth-Hitchcock COVID-19 vaccine website, again, I think is quite accessible and um, has nice links. It will take you to the New Hampshire COVID-19 vaccine website, Vermont, Massachusetts, the CDC, so a lot of good uh, references there. 
I think that you should uh, read and become knowledgeable. You should speak with people who you trust their opinion and that they are knowledgeable about the science related to the vaccines. And at this point in time, from everything that I have read, and certainly from um, our own experience here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, I strongly recommend that people get this vaccine. It appears safe. It's well-tolerated. And I think for our, our communities and our country and our world to, to have a hope of returning to our life when we used to be able to hug each other and get together at weddings and have big Christmas celebrations or Thanksgiving dinners, I think the vaccine is going to be a really important tool. I think in the meantime, while you're making your decision, we have to remain vigilant. We have to continue to practice the good public health measures that are hard to practice. We have to mask good hand hygiene, avoid travel, avoid uh, large gatherings, to remain physically distanced, not socially distanced, because I think we need to take care of each other and stay connected in every way that we can that doesn't involve a, a physical connection, but to stay physically distanced. And even after the vaccine, we're going to have to continue those public health measures until we are able to get enough of our communities vaccinated and immune so that we can start to relax and take off our masks and hug and embrace each other again. But in the meantime, I do recommend reading from evidence and reading from science-based literature. Be careful of the myths that are circulating. There is a lot of misinformation out there. So go to trusted websites, go to those people that you trust that they have done their homework and they are based in science and they uh, can give you trustworthy advice. Thank you, Sally. I too can't wait for this pandemic to end so I could hug my wife again. <laughs> I but, think you could give her a hug right now, Jose. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, uh, I really do appreciate all the work that you're doing to make this happen for our community. It's really you're doing the work of uh, healthcare heroes. Really appreciate you for doing that and, and taking time to making this a reality as a next step, uh, again, to end the pandemic for everyone. Uh, and thank you for spending your time with us today. Oh. Absolutely. Thank you guys. And I meant that about a team sport. No one can do this alone. It takes everyone working together. To summarize what we heard today, New Hampshire had started vaccine rollout for phase 1B on Friday, January 22nd. Eligible individuals included in the phase 1B group are New Hampshire residents age 65 and older with two or more high-risk conditions as identified by their physician or medical health record. New Hampshire residents who elect to get the vaccine are advised to register through the website www.vaccines.nh.gov. DHMC will assist in providing the attestation of comorbid conditions for Dartmouth patients less than 65 years old. It is important to report to both your primary care physician as well as to the state if you experience side effects from the vaccine. If you are experiencing severe allergic reactions, such as swelling of the mouth or difficulty breathing, you should call 911. 
Lastly, we recommend due diligence in researching about the vaccine and its side effects from reliable sources prior to making any decision with regards to vaccination. When in doubt, discuss with your primary care physician the risks and benefits of getting this vaccine. This episode was directed by Jose Mercado and produced by me, Amog Karnik. All materials discussed here are for the purposes of education only and should not be taken as medical advice. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.